Love is the only weapon. Shit! Bullshit! Martin Luther King died with love! Kennedy died talking about something he couldn't even understand, some kind of generalized love, and he never even backed it up! He shut down! Bullshit! Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight! I got my claws, I got compasses, I got guns, I got dynamite, I got a hell of a lot to fight! I'll fight! I'll fight! Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and wrong. Yes, you're listening to Synchronon. The Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm your host, E. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Hiya. Kate Rambo, you sound jubilant. Is this because it's your favorite month of the year? Uh, this is one of my favorite occasions of the year, yes. But is it your favorite month or just your favorite occasion? It's one of my favorite occasions. You know, like there are certain true crime memorials that are forever in your heart, and this is one of them for you're, me. Okay, you're not talking about Thanksgiving. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm British. I've never even celebrated Thanksgiving, and I'm still like unsure as to why Americans are all about when my lot came over and then gave smallpox to the lot that already lived here and, like, we should celebrate it with, like, I don't know, the killing of a bird. That's what we're giving thanks for, smallpox. I just, I will never celebrate a holiday where I have to kill a bird. I'm I'm not getting behind it, especially turkeys, because they're very delightful. You just wait and see till you have your first Thanksgiving with Wackerly next week. You might be changing your tune. Um... No, I think I, I do know what you're referring to. It is kind of a holiday for you. Um, it's uh, today, actually, June 18th, or June, November 18th, is uh, the 45th anniversary of the tragedy of the Jonestown, uh, uh, the Jonestown Massacre. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, 45 years. Half a century almost. But for me, it never ends. Yep. Jim Jones led hundreds to their death uh, November 18th, 1978. In uh, the remote jungles of Guyana, South America, um, 913 people, actually, including 276 children and 40 of them little babies. Little babies. Can't someone think of the children? Well, they were thinking of the children. That's why they took the children first and killed them first. So apparently, and it kind of sucks we're going to miss this for by like three or four days, but so we're going up to uh, the Bay Area to go have Thanksgiving with my sister. And Jer, we talk all about this on the second show. Uh, Wackley's going to be there with his wife, which will be fun. Yeah, I love uh, I love Wackley's wife. She's a great, she's great fun. My brother's making a green bean casserole. I think you need to backtrack because he's not <laughs> making anything. He has bought frozen green bean casserole. I'm going to eat it. I mean, I'm looking forward to the food. Aside, you know, obviously, I'm you're not brave. Eat it. I'm. Don't think I'm going to go anywhere near my brother's green bean casserole. Well, he didn't make it. He's bought it frozen. All your sister's going to do is throw it in the oven. Uh, sorry, not Stephanie. Jer is going to throw it in the oven. Well, we'll see. Um, but we're missing it just by a few days because uh, on Saturday, today, November 18th, the family of the Jonestown survivors hold an anniversary ceremony at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California, which... It- isn't that far from where uh, Stephanie and Jared live now? Oh, no. And we'll be going to the, uh, we're definitely going to go to the site to see this grave when, uh, when we're up there for sure. This is a bucket list item for me, and it has been for a long time. 
You know, I've been to the Piedmont Cemetery in Oakland. It's a beautiful cemetery. We'll go there too. Yeah. Uh, but I've never been to this evergreen one. I was looking at the location. It's not even that far from where Wackley and I lived uh, in Lake Merritt. Um, but it's, it's more like central Oakland, kind of near the uh, Coliseum. Okay. Where the, um, where the Warriors used to play. Um, but yeah, my um, sister and Jared just bought a new home, that, which isn't very far. So I think we'll definitely go check it out. But we're going to miss the uh, the anniversary. I don't want to say it's a celebration, but the ceremony. I'm kind of glad of that because I think everyone should miss the ceremony. And it should just be because, you know, there's still survivors from Jonestown. And this day must I was actually emailing um, with one of the survivors of Jonestown. And I was just like, I really hope like the day passes by easy for you because we can't imagine even 45 years later it must be so fucked up because you some people lost not like you're not only losing your entire family you're losing a family that you've adopted a community a whole community and i I can't imagine what that would feel like so i would never want to go and be a lucky loo i know i can be like a total deaf hag and like have no respect for shit but at the same time i'm like i have a lot of respect for these people what are you talking about you're you're bummed that we were going up there on saturday to to make the ceremony i would totally like stare at them from the trees (laughs) but i would never like go up and be like hold the candle i wouldn't be like oh my god debbie layton let me talk talk to you oh my god well, no, you wouldn't be crass but i mean you wouldn't hold a candle just kind of watch the ceremony well no because i also feel that's like hypocritical of me to hold a candle like i wouldn't do that either um, i would in memory of the the, of the the victims that's crass for me to do that as well like what, no you don't have any sympathy for the victims no i have lots of sympathy for the so victims of why Jonestown. would you want to memorialize them because it's not like I don't believe in any of that shit. I haven't even been to my dad's grave, so why am I going to hold a candle over the grave of nine hundred people? No, like, I mean come I think on. it's if if someone if I attended the ceremony, someone gave me a candle, I'd hold the candle. I don't mind. Well, I would have to, but I would never go to the ceremony. Just throw it on the ground, like fuck you. No, fuck your ceremony. I wouldn't be at the ceremony to begin with. Well, we should probably go there very soon because uh, the mass grave where a lot of these innocent victims are buried has a plaque. With the name Jim Jones on it. Well, he's also in the mass grave with them, though. And I feel, I know exactly what you're about to say, and I'm about to get very angry, and I'm going to get on my high horse very soon. I'm about to step onto the high horse. Well, it's coming. Um, apparently, this was done by members of the Jones family. and They honored him with a plaque, along with the, uh, the victims of the Jonestown Massacre. And so recently, there's been a movement to remove this plaque. Not by all of the survivors. Dr. Jiona Norwood and the staff of the Jonestown Memorial Wall Project are calling for the name of Jim Jones to be immediately removed from the gravesite. No, and I think it shouldn't be. And I think by removing him, you're kind of pissing on the memory of everyone who died in Jonestown. Because a lot of people came together because of Jim Jones. They then had such faith in this man and the socialist cause that they were willing to uproot their lives to move to another country to start the perfect socialist society for Jim Jones. Well, you could also say, or you can maybe argue, that a lot of them are dead because of Jim Jones. Yeah, but at the same time, we'll never know who went to their deaths willingly and who was murdered because there were certainly a lot of, people a lot of them who killed themselves. A lot of them were forced. No, but you, yeah, some were forced, but some yeah. very willingly went to their deaths. So, and you can't say who it was and who it wasn't. So I think he deserves to... He died with his people. He deserves to be there. Well, these people feel it's disrespectful. A lot of these are, are, are family members. Their family members died during Jonestown. And they feel it's disrespectful for his name to be anywhere near 
uh, these innocent victims. And so they've been talking to uh, congressmen and public officials about this, um, and they feel, I, I guess their analogy is, would a plaque of any kind be anywhere near Holocaust victims' gravesite? Like, for example, like, would you have Adolf Hitler? Oh, and well, like, here comes the Hitler analogy. <laughs> that didn't take long. Right at a Holocaust memorial. It's an entirely different situation. An entirely different situation. And I think, yeah, people might not be happy about it, but I would like to know like, what Debbie Layton has said or what the Stones have said. You know, people who have been talking about Jonestown for this long or like Jackie Spear, what she said, Tim Reiterman. Well, it'd be like, interesting to find out because I wonder if a lot of people would be opposed to even having the plaque there in the first place. I don't know. They might be. Um, this, they interviewed uh, this uh, Dr. Amos Brown, who's a pastor of the Third Street Baptist Church in San Francisco, and he was reflecting on the, on the times because he, he experienced, um, you know, uh, he, he was a you know, pastor during the time of Jim Jones. He said, you have to remember, during that time there was a void in the black churches in that area. Yeah. And Jones had systematically targeted the largest black churches and would always show up with a smile. He said the man would never take off his shades, but something didn't quite smell right with him. He would always offer to help the masses with food banks, set up uh, temporary tents to pay utility bills, and bring loads of money to pay for the needy. But something didn't smell right with him. Oh, he's saying that now in recollection. And he's probably also jealous that Jim Jones had a huge congregation. He's like, why is nobody showing up to my sermons and bringing their money to me? He recounted a story that when Jones reached out to become a member of the Bay Area Black Leaders Forum, even though he wasn't black... He was mixed race, though, didn't you say? Um, I think he does have Native American ancestry, yes. I mean, he's, you know, raven-haired, raven-eyed. But he wasn't black. But he wanted to be a member of the Bay Area Black Leaders Forum. And he believed that would allow him to have a free ticket to kind of really, you know, I don't know if necessarily exploit people of color, but definitely appeal to people of color, give them some credibility. And so during that time, there were several uh, reverends um, that met... Uh, with um with Jim Jones and his team, so Jim Jones just walks in, sunglasses, bodyguards, and I was like, "Yeah, Being I want to be a member. Shit. Yeah, yeah. I want to be a member of the uh, the Bay Area Black Leaders Forum." And they all voted uh, for him not to be a member, and that he was not happy about yeah, it. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. And plus, we've all seen what happens when Jim Jones get to- gets told no, and he has some bad news. Like <laughs> the John, the toys are truly chucked out the pram. With uh, Jim Jones. Yeah, he's like, fuck you, I'm going to go to Guyana. Yeah, and, and while I'm there, lads, while I'm there, just you wait. So there's a website, jonestownofficialmemorial.org, and you can donate um, to no. uh, this, this wall that they want to make. And the, the wall is like a heart with a picture of all like the 305 no, children. No, it doesn't have the pictures of all of... This well, is not my all problem the children, with some it. Of the because if you're going to have pictures of all the kids, they've obviously cherry-picked these children because if you go on the Jonestown website, they have pictures of everyone who died. So you can't tell me that they're not going to put up 300 pictures of every kid who's died because well, that's have, what I want. They have a list of all the names, but they have a heart, which is like a collage Yeah, but then they've cherry-picked these kids. They've been like, who's the most attractive for our wall plaque they haven't been like let's put every kid on there so i think that i think that's shit so i what, would be upset what kate rambo is vowed to do if they do take jim jones's <laughs> name off and they put this heart with all the children's faces she's going to make her own heart collage of just the many sides of jim jones uh, well i've already the many uh, outfits the yeah many i've obviously already got this heart-shaped tribute to jim jones <laughs> in my house right now so i'm just gonna take it down and i'm gonna take it there and she's going to glue it over 
the one of the children and yeah. just kind of leave it there in the middle of the night. So, uh, so we'll see. But I mean, I think keep in mind if you go over to the Jonestown Official Memorial dot org site, um, you you might be convinced to support the uh, the innocent children and uh, and the victims by helping remove Jim Jones's name because it dishonors the gravesite. It doesn't. You don't know what you're talking about. And no, it shouldn't happen. Jim Jones died of his people and as like bad as it is, he deserves to be with them as well. The innocent children perish in Jonestown without a fighting chance and we must say never again. Stop. Gone but not forgotten, okay? So Stop. we're going to take that plaque Stop down. Stop reading off the website. <laughs> and Sick Stop. and Wrong is going to donate $100. No, we're not. <laughs> I want my $100 back. I'm going to put $100 into printing out pictures of dads then and I'm going to make my own plaque. Well, so uh, Kate's ecstatic because uh, this is the one time of year she gets to do a Jonestown topic on the show. I know. Thank you. No, we, we did a Jonestown. When was the last time we did a Jonestown topic? Um, we talked about Mr. Mooks. Yeah, the animals. Yes. Of, uh, yeah. So I got a little Jonestown out of me then. There's a couple, like, I, I will put it out there. There's a couple of episodes I would like to do before the podcast is officially called quits. I'd like to talk about the women of Jonestown who held a lot of power and some of them as are just as guilty as Jim Jones as uh, creating the massacre. And I would love to do an episode about the drugs in Jonestown because Ooh, there be was a lot. And there it was a, a very, there was an evil doctor in Jonestown who I would love to do, like profile and do an episode on one well, day. Well, there's hardly an episode that goes by of Sick and Wrong that we don't mention. Well, you don't mention Jim Jones's names. And then I mention that you're mentioning Jim Jones's name again. Today, I'm, I'm going to get it on my system, and then I promise you and all the listeners, I will go four episodes without Four comparing, episodes. Com- without comparing or thinking about Jim Jones. I promise I'll yeah, do that. Right. He's just my thing at the minute. We saw the hives the other night. We also talked about this in the second show. And all Kate could say is, he reminds me of Jim Jones, the lead singer. He does, though. Come on. Pe- <laughs> Pele is like Jim Jones. He's like the love child of Jim Jones and Mick Jagger. <laughs> Well, this week on the show, we're not just going to do an overview of uh, the Jonestown Massacre, what happened to Guyana. Instead, we're talking about a lesser-known character um, from the Jonestown world named Joseph Mazur, uh, the crooked Columbo of Jonestown, the uh, one-eyed detective here who was hired by defectors from the People's Temple uh, to rescue the children of Jonestown. Yes, and he is a very interesting person. Yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, went as planned. (laughs) Uh, We'll get to that in a second. Uh, But first, let's chat about something much more in need of being rescued than a bunch of street urchins in the jungles of Guyana. I'm talking about the sick and wrong patron. That could be rescued. Yeah. Yeah, weren't they street urchins, these little kids? No, a lot of them were from David. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking, they're dirty. You know, I saw pictures of them running around. Exactly. Well, dirty street urchins. Okay, we'll go with dirty jungle urchins then. <laughs> so if you worship uh, at the cult of sick and wrong, then all we ask is for you to sign up for sick and wrong patron and support the show. We're not going to make you drink the flavor aid. Maybe. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you for not getting yet. it right. Not Thank yet. You. Uh, but we're just asking $5 a month. $5 a month. That's it. Think about what you waste $5 a month on. It's the price of a cup of coffee. It's the price of a pint. And it's- you're... Putting back. It's less than the price of a pint in this city. Well, considering how much Jim Jones is into socialism, this is one socialist cause that you can really truly get behind. You give a little, you get Get a a lot. lot That's what it is. So five bucks a month to get access to Sick and Wrong's second show. And this week on the second show, uh, we chat about Kate meeting a custard sister. Um, 
We had drinks the other night with my dramatic ex-girlfriend uh, from years ago, Heather. Um, and uh, that was an interesting um, a meeting. Got a little of the, tipsy. Of the, two, of the two girlfriends here. that One former, one, well, or one but wife and former girlfriend. It was a very interesting uh, encounter. And we got really drunk. We got really drunk. And then we held up like our little fingers to signify the length of your pee-pee. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Um, we also talk about uh, um, uh, Kate and I found a new apartment in uh, in West Hollywood, not too far from here. It's, it's a new Sick and Wrong studio is going to be moving I to know. a new place. Very excited. It's a great place. It's very reminiscent of the bunker, and together we're going to create our own bunker. <laughs> it's a nice place. So we're going to be moving there soon. We talk about that, as well as a news story about a 400-pound sod buster who stabbed his girlfriend 57 times in a fight over food. He was freed from an Italian prison because he's too fat yeah. to be incarcerated. Uh, that's only $5 a month. You get access to Sick and Wrong Second Show, as well as access to the official Sick and Wrong Discord. Uh, you don't even have to sign up for Patreon to support the show, because now you can just go into Apple Podcasts to subscribe to Second Show. There's a couple different ways there. Um, I also posted uh, the first six years of Sick and Wrong on Apple Podcasts as well. So just do a search for Sick and Wrong Podcast, and then you can subscribe to the archives there, too. Um, also, for a few dollars more, you get access to, to um, some of our bonus episodes on the patrons, such as Overkill and Serial Killer Star Signs, which uh, this month is the Scorpio edition. It is, right? with, uh, with Alexandria from uh, We Hate You podcast. Special guest star. Yeah, yeah, special guest star Alexandria uh, was on this week. So, um, And I believe you talk about a, uh, I don't want to <gasps> ruin the surprise, but there's a, there's a person that I didn't even know was a Scorpio. A very iconic British uh, celebrity that has probably assaulted and raped more people than Jimmy Savile could have ever hoped to. Yeah, Jimmy Savile wasn't a Scorpio, was he? He actually was a Scorpio. And you didn't cover Savile? No, because Savile's kind of been done to death and there was just that new ITV documentary. And I mean... Like, yeah, I mean, he fucks kids and dead bodies. But other than that, Savile's... hum Yeah, other than that, Savile's just a bit like, whatever. You know? As a British person, like, I'm sure he's much more intriguing to people outside of Britain. All that and much, much more on the Sick and Wrong Patreon. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. We do appreciate the support. So let me play this quick promo, and then let's uh, get into Joe Mazor, the one-eyed P.I. of Jonestown. Brothers and sisters, this is the Atheist Preacher, and I'm here today to tell you about the Sick and Wrong Patreon, patreon.com slash sickandwrong. As we all know, money is the root of all evil, so what better way to cleanse your soul than by kicking some into the plate for the Sick and Wrong Patreon? Not only do you get to enjoy all the original sins, like extra news stories, phone calls, and outtakes, you also get to feel self-righteous knowing you've helped this Jew and this Jezebel on their path to hell. Hallelujah! So before we get into this, I want to give a huge shout out to the amazing website, Jonestown SDSU. I've talked about this website before. It's like your one-stop web page for all your Jonestown needs. It's fantastic. It truly is a remarkable site. It's one of the best. So Joseph Mazer, he's like kind of a character straight up from the pages of a noir novel. He's a con man. He's served time in the same prison that once housed Manson and Donald DeFries before somehow getting a private investigator's license. And he opens up his own detective agency in San Francisco. 
So those that don't know, uh, Donald David DeFries, also known as Cinque Mutume. Yeah. And he is the nom de guerre General Field Marshal Cinque. And he was known as the spokesman of the Symbionese Liberation Army. And maybe one day we'll cover him because the way he died... It's very... It's very dramatic. I would love to do the SLA. Yeah. And I mean, I would love to talk about Patty Hearst. And all I've got a lot... Of, I love her, so why not? We've done the SLA topics in the past, but this would be a good one. We should maybe get into that. Okay, let's put a pin on that. We'll let's come back to Let's put a pin it. in that one. So like other film noir archetypes... He's also prone to fits of violence. He's prone to bouts of the bottle. He's grizzled. He sometimes wear an eye, wears an eye patch, so he looks super cool. Everyone with an eye patch when you're an adult looks super cool. And Joe, we're going to call him Joe. He might have gone down in history as just like another cuckoo for Cocoa Pop, San Francisco legend. There's a lot of them. If it wasn't for one thing, or, well, two things. He's kind of like Columbo with an eye patch, except yeah. he is devoid of a moral, moral compass. What's the... Oh, it's in Dr. Evil. Um, Dr. Evil's, like, number sidekick. One. Yeah, yeah, Rob Lowe. One. Doesn't yeah. he look like Rob Lowe? It's he just come to me now look like Rob from Lowe. Austin Powers. Yeah, he does. I like there's this picture of Joe Mazur where he's got his eye patch on, but he's wearing sunglasses on top of the eye patch. I mean, come on. That's even more ominous. I will yeah, protect my menacing. one good eye. <laughs> For two years, he was apparently working to free the children from the clutches of the jungle in Guyana and from the close watch of their father, Reverend Jim Jones, in the People's Temple Agricultural Project. So sadly, he fails because 304 children were murdered there on the mass murder-suicide that occurred on November the 18th, 1978. And on that mass grave site, they did put Jim Jones's name, but I don't know how much longer that will remain there. It should remain there. Joe's life, like a lot of those who survived Jonestown, is going to take a weird turn in the coming years afterwards, but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Because, yes, it's one of my favorite times of the year, and that means it's Jonestown month. Although for people like me, Jonestown is forever in your heart. Yeah, every day is Jonestown for you. (laughs) Fuck yeah, it is. So there are a lot of misconceptions about Jonestown, least of which is that they drank Kool-Aid, which we all know they did not. The punchline was very long that day, though. Um, it does very much anger me when people say cool, like drink the Jonestown Kool Aid. I just think, oh, fuck off. Just kind of lazy. Yeah. It's like lazy research. But it's going to take an epically produced podcast like Transmission from Jonestown or the book Raven by uh, shooting on the tarmac survivor Tim Reiterman. And I want to give a thanks to Evil Bunny, because Evil Bunny from Rhode Island, because she gave me these recs, like these recommendations, like two years ago. Nice. Like coming up to probably two years ago. So thank you. So you need these to kind of help piece together the beginning, the middle, and the end of Jonestown. We're not going to kind of do that. There are plenty of other books that provide more evidence as well as the fantastically curated Jonestown website where it dispels all the myths and it presents the facts as we find them. That 907 people guzzled down a potassium cyanide, valium, chloral hydrate, potassium chloride, laced flavor, aid cocktail. Flavor aid was actually cheaper than Kool-Aid, which was perfect for the penny pinching uh, people's temple. Yeah, what a bargain. You can buy it in bulk. Yeah, well, they bought the cyanide in bulk, for yeah. sure. And this was all shaken and stirred by a doctor of death and expert deadly cocktail maker, Dr. Lawrence Larry Eugene Schacht. Uh, he's definitely somebody I would like to talk about. He's the, the Jonestown bartender? Oh, yeah, the deadly one. Kill a headache the next morning off Dr. <laughs> Larry. So Jim and his nurse and bang buddy, Annie Moore, they die of gunshot wounds. So as an aside... 
Cyanide poisoning is a really painful way to die. And everyone inside the inner circle and the planning commission, they knew this. It can take anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes to die. First, your body is going to begin to convulse and then your mouth will fill with like a mixture of saliva, blood and vomit. And then you're just going to pass out and die as your like body and is being deprived of oxygen. Yeah, I've read it's agonizing. It's like drinking bleach. Yeah, kind of. You know that scene in Downfall? Not when they're all in the bunker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, they're all just like making the kids take the cyanide. The pills, yeah. Oh, it's vicious. So cyanide has the taste and the smell of bitter almonds. And that amongst the bloated, rapidly putrefying corpses was the main smell that permeated those that began the cleanup operations. As another aside, we'll also never know if Jim blew his own brains out, although it's looking more likely that Annie did the final deed. But both of them had pink teeth, uh, which is an indication of cyanide poisoning, and Annie had cyanide in her muscles, meaning that both had downed this downer drink, but neither had wanted to suffer through their final moments. How do you know that Annie uh, put him out of his misery? Because they couldn't find gunshot residue on his hand, which is quite common. But I think it it probably would have been like her last act of service. To I don't think Jim Jones would have ever killed himself. Like and then with a she gun. suicided. And they say that because she wrote a letter. So she was probably alive for a little bit of time after Jim Jones. And then she would have taken cyanide. You know, I doubt the corpses just smelled like... Like almonds, because oh. you know when you when you die, the, the corpses usually release gas as they decompose, and they're in the jungle too. So yeah, they've been extra gassy. So I imagine it was like a bunch of like a Guyanese field of just almond farting corpses. That uh, they the, stank. That the people found. Yeah, they mention about how like much they stank, and you could smell it in the air above Jonestown. Almond farting corpses. It's like a Christmas, <laughs> like marzipan. So five more people then murdered by a death squad at the Port Kaituma airstrip. And Sharon Amos, who was working in the Georgetown headquarters, she received word over the radio of the revolutionary suicide that was taking place. So she takes her three children into the bathroom and she slits their throats before slitting her own. Even the pets of Jonestown uh, were shot or poisoned. Uh, you can see the very, in, I think it's on the front cover of Time on Newsweek where there's the dead dog on the front. And this is also including Mr. Muggs, and we covered him in episode 869. And he was the last survivor, remember? He was still yeah, alive was when the, the Guyanese uh, forces came in. Yeah, the pets really broke my heart. Like, I don't care that much about the people, but how many pets actually died? Do you know? Too many, D. Too wow. many. At least, I think it was at least five dogs. And, and they shot them. Where's the memorial for the pets? Exactly. There should be. I think Mr. Muggs is, on the, is actually mm-hmm. on the memorial. Well, they better not put Jim Jones's name on the memorial for the pets, okay? <laughs> Maybe we should do a memorial with 300 pictures of Mr. Muggs <laughs> in memory of Mr. Muggs. <clears throat> so in the beginning, Jonestown was actually kind of good, but along the way it went very, very bad. And there were lots of very, vi- very bad people who ended up getting caught in its like awful orbit. So before Joseph Mazer played his part in the Jonestown play, very little is known. Mazer would later state that he had started his investigation at the behest of a friend inside the San Francisco Police Department in 76. But his claws wouldn't have locked into Jim Jones if it wasn't for a woman called Jeannie Mills. So Jeannie, her real name was uh, Deanna Myrtle, along with her husband, Al, whose real name was Elmer Myrtle. They set the wheels for murder and suicide in motion. To some degree, I'm not victim blaming, but it is the truth. And I'm going to use their names, Al and Jeannie, so it doesn't get really confusing. We're using their fake, like their names they chose. 
Yeah, I think it's questionable how much, how much, how culpable they are. No, the they mass, are for the mass. No, I can understand they played a role, but I wouldn't say they're as culpable as Jim Jones. No, but if they hadn't done what they did and added to the paranoia that Jim Jones is already under, then he probably wouldn't have gone to Guyana in the first place. Well, we'll get into it, but I think he still would have gone to Guyana. I don't think he would have. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think there's going to be defectors from the church. I think it's the way he handled it, but he's yeah. also a paranoiac, so. I don't know. We'll I mean, see. what do you say? What are you saying? Like they should just stuck with it? No, I'm not saying they should have stuck with it. But when they came out, they were very vicious opponents to the church. And this led up to like Jim Jones just having this complete and utter mental breakdown and taking like 500 people extra to Jonestown with him when Jonestown wasn't ready. And by him going to Jonestown and c- cutting himself off from the world, that's the beginning of the end. Like, Jim Jones needed people. He didn't need to be in the jungle. As soon as he went there, it was a death sentence. And that's when it became a cult as well. As soon I as agree, they went to I, Guyana. I, I can understand where you're coming from, but I still think he would have moved there anyway because the world was closing in on him. Maybe. He had plenty of opportunities to go somewhere else. But, you know, that's another topic for another day. Don't get me started. One of the reasons that they do legally change the names is because it's a very classic control technique that Jim Jones did across all all his temple members. He would make people sign blank pieces of paper, which he would then use as bargaining tools. So he would write incriminating statements on it, such as that they had molested their children, or they had asked Pastor Jones to have sex with them, or he would even sign over the power of attorney to the temple. And another reason was because of the fear of what the people's temple would do to them or their family, like he would send assassins. This is very similar to another active cult in Los Angeles masquerading as religion. Church of Scientology. I think because it I mean, is. when you get on the cans, it's very. It sounds very similar to what what, what Jim Jones did with the, the pieces of like the confession paper here. Well, Jim had a little sect in uh, L.A., didn't he? So it wouldn't surprise me if maybe he'd influenced some Scientologists along well, the way. Well, I just think it's just, it's a it's a classic mind control technique, right? And obviously, cults use this technique. Cult leaders use this technique. And what is Scientology? A cult. A cult. So both Al and Jeannie are on their second marriage. Al's 40, he had three children, and Jeannie was 20 when they met in 1968 at the Bay Area chapter of Parents Without Partners, which was like, you know, a mingling group for single parents, and they would marry six months later. They had been members of the People's Temple from November the 2nd, 1969, until October the 16th, 1975, and after they defected, she wrote a very good tell-all book called Six Shares with God. And in the book, she mentions all the other mysterious deaths that surrounded those that left the temple and the control of Jim Jones. Yeah, he wasn't too fond of the defectors. Oh, no. (laughs) You were his enemy if you left him. So there was Maxine Harp in Redwood Valley who supposedly committed suicide after an altercation with church members. Emily Leonard, who was trying to recover some of the property the church had taken from her, she died the day she was supposed to go to court against Jim Jones. Robert Houston died under unusual circumstances while working for Southern Pacific. The church had called him treasonous in the past, and his wife Joyce had left the church um, a few weeks before. So Bob Houston is really interesting. He was born October the 13th, 1943, and he dies in San Francisco on October the 5th, 76. And the, he is one of the way more suspicious deaths that is, is definitely something to do with the temple. He had several part-time jobs during his life in order to support his family and to make substantial contributions to People's Temple. And one of these jobs was as a night maintenance worker in the Southern Pacific train yard. On the night that he does die, 
Bobby's body was discovered after it had been run over by a train, apparently resulting in his instant death. But there's no eyewitnesses. He's discovered in a part of the train yard where he had never worked and his workers' gloves were like folded neatly nearby and had been unused. Yeah, that's suspicious. Was he the, the fat guy that Jim Jones made fun of? No, he wasn't fat. Oh, okay. He made fun of a fat woman. Um, I can't remember her name right now. And he made her strip to... Sandra Good. He made her strip to her bra and underwear. And then he pushed her in the pool up at Redwood. He did that quite a Harsh. lot. Even though Jim Jones was fat when he got to Jonestown. He proper parked out. He was drinking soda all live long day, high as a kite. He parks out. He definitely gained some weight when yeah. he was in Jonestown, but... He does. So Tim Reiterman points out in his book, Raven, Jim Jones took an active role in criticizing Bobby. He would hold him up to ridicule by the entire community. And he even literally made Bobby his punching bag in the uh, boxing matches, which Jones staged for mainly his enjoyment, during which a victim was forced to fight a much more physically imposing opponent every Saturday boxing. Well, you can't really blame him. I mean, they don't really have TV in Guyana, I imagine. No, this was in Redwood Valley. Mate. Oh, it's in Redwood this Valley? In oh, okay, all right. I was about to say, he, seemed, he was probably bored in Guyana, so I imagine he probably would uh, stage some boxing matches, a fight club. Jim jo- Jonestown Fight Club. I, I'm down for Jonestown Fight Club. So Jones would have also been intimidated by the intellect of Bob because he had a degree in music from the University of California at Berkeley, and then he had advanced academic work at San Francisco State University. So Bob isn't dumb. Um, and we also know that Jim Jones didn't pay much mind to killing 900-odd people to save face, so he probably wouldn't have uh, fought twice about bumping off Bob, who constantly criticized and questioned his authority. It sounds like Bob is a bit of a thorn in Jim's side. Yeah, well, he yeah. took care of that thorn. So Bob's death also sets in motion for the revolutionary suicide. Again, I'm not victim-blaming. It's just the way it is. I just love how everybody's at fault except for Jim. No, he is at fault, but I'm saying these are all things that he led... played a minor role. They do. In this. Yeah, can't Jim just say Jones it was... played a very minor role in Look, the death of these 900 people. You can't people. just say that it was Jim Jones that did it because it wasn't just Jim Jones. He also had the People's Planning Commission and the Inner Circle all knew that there was a suicide planned at some point there was going to be a suicide any of those women but what, okay. and people could have turned around like Annie Moore could have turned around and said to him Jim this is fucked up we are not going to poison everyone anyone could have done but that what but if they didn't Jim Jones was like you know what I changed my mind we're not drinking the flavor aid we're going to live people well a lot of them were like no father we have to do that because by that point they like it's not I, brainwashing they're so into do it do you think if Jim was like I've changed my mind this is not the way to go it's not what God wants we're going to do something else we're all going to make a porn or something. Whoa. I don't know. I, I just think he played a little bit no, more he does, but he, uh, of a minor role in this. I know he did, but it's not as simple. Jonestown isn't as simple as saying Jim Jones did it. It's not. And this is why I find Jonestown very, very fascinating. I do think there are people that were allied in the cause, but I think it was definitely Jim Jones who's the ringleader. Well, one of them. There's more. Um, after the accident... Bob's father, Sammy, he contacted Congressman Leo Ryan with his misgivings about what the People's Temple and its recently established agricultural project known as Jonestown. This actually wasn't the first time that Leo Ryan had heard or been warned about what was occurring down in Jonestown, and his interest led him to contact former family members who had now formed a group called the Concerned Relatives. This is a group of defectors organized by Al and Jeannie Mills. 
They're also going to find the uh, hu- found the Human Freedom Center. And it's a refuge for other temple defectors. And they turned all their attentions to putting a lot of pressure on Jones, especially in the media, in his political and governmental circles. And I mean, they have a lot of tea to spill. They have all the receipts, as the kids say. Well, at least they're, they're calling him out and taking him down because they knew something was awry. Right. So I think in their defense... They were trying to save lives. Oh, I'm still there. Yeah, I'm totally you know? on their side. And I understand. And I think what they're doing is super fucking brave. But at the same time, this is contributing to Jones. Well, inadvertently, I think it contributed to Jones' right. paranoia yeah. and, and convinced him to uh, head to Guyana. So if you want to hear um, Al and uh, Jeannie and their daughter Daphne, Daphne, I can't say her name. It's not Daphne. It's the other way. Is it Daphne? It's Daphne. Thank you, Daphne. It's a weird name. It's a very nice name, though. So there is a fantastic documentary called Deceived by Reverend Mel White. The documentary is all up on YouTube. And uh, it's like one of the all the 70s documentaries about Jonestown are the best. And he also wrote a book. And it's a very interesting book because he's a, it's from like a reverend's point of view about how you, he mishandled the church. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting. So Al and Jeannie had once been some of Jim Jones's closest collaborators. In Jeff Ginn's book, a great book, The Road to Jonestown, there's a story of a 19-year-old girl who had hitchhiked to the People's Temple and Al and Jeannie, who often looked after the temple children, they took her in. The teen becomes homesick while she's there, so she begins writing long letters home, but no one ever replies, so she becomes heartbroken and she stops writing home. It's only later that she learns that the Mills had stolen every one of her letters to give to Jones so that he could convince the girl that he could read her mind. Ooh, that's devious. Yeah. Later, Jeannie said we were learning a new set of ethics from Jim, that the end justifies the mean, which is a very big saying for Jim Jones. They helped distribute propaganda. They would scout locations for Jonestown. So Al's the church official's photographer. And he went with Jones to like the barely livable patch of jungle in Guyana for the first time. Jones made him set up the shots so that the area would look like way more enticing to its followers than the shithole is. Because like the land wasn't easy to farm. So they went to a local grocery store and they brought produce to stage in the photographs. But if you look behind them, they forgot to take like the grocery sack out of the pictures. And this is why you need to have a stylist on set at all times. It's like they're trying to sell a shitty timeshare. It's fucking exactly what <laughs> they were right doing. right next to the beach. There are no snakes here. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's a beautiful countryside. Warm. No mosquitoes. No. Lay out, catch a tan, drink a Mai Tai. You'll love it here. <laughs> Jonestown. Come on down. Fun for the whole family. <laughs> but when they left the People's Temple and they began to report Jones to the police... Oh my God, he's not going to take this betrayal lightly. He's going to constantly lash out at the mills in his sermons. He's going to rant over the Jonestown speaker. He calls them traitors. He threatens retribution against them and all the other defectors. And the mills become the worst sort of enemies that Jones has always imagined he would have. You know, Jones's behavior is very reminiscent of a certain Republican uh, presidential candidate. Yes. (laughs) I wonder who that could be. Although the Republican candidate is nowhere near as sexy as Jim Jones. Putting it out there. According to you... He's a good-looking man. Those a are lot of MAGA guys, guys oh, know, have, have many nightly dreams <laughs> over, uh, over their furor. So, you know, Jim is down in Guyana. He's thousands of miles away. He still has his followers in California, and he still has power over them. So he sends them to intimidate the family. And they left threatening letters. They're going to surveil the Mills' home and the Human Freedom Center, which was at 3208 Regent Street in Berkeley for the people who are in the hood. Is that still there? 
Um, I but looked. What is there it's now? just like a house. Hmm. It's just a house. So Eddie and Daphne didn't want to go to school alone, so I started driving them to and from. She write, uh, Jeannie writes. Each time we went out in the car, another car would follow us. We're now living under Jim's reign of terror. And it was during this reign of terror, whilst they were petitioning Leo Ryan to visit Jonestown, that Joe Mazer would turn his one good PII to the cause. After Jeannie had delivered testimony to the DA's office, Joe suggested to Jeannie that he could help with the case and that he's only going to charge her a dollar. He's going to do it mm-hmm. out of the goodness of his heart. She writes, I asked him why, and he told us that getting children back to their rightful guardians was his specialty. He also told us that he wanted this case for the publicity. We left his office with mixed feelings, but he promised to get uh, the two children out of Jonestown that we were willing to let him try. So eventually Joe's going to claim that he was working for 18 families in an attempt to retrieve family members that were being held captive in Jonestown, even by kidnapping if necessary. So he's going to kidnap the kidnapped. Well, didn't he, didn't he return two kids though? He did return two kids, the two kids that Alan Jeannie had been specifically asking for, but they weren't in Jonestown. They okay, were or, they were in California. He just went and probably picked them up and said, oh, "I'm taking these." But to where were they? Like, they were, were in they, California. But were they abducted? Like, why weren't they with their parents? Well, there were a lot of foster kids that went into Jonestown because the money is so good, right? Because you're getting money when you get a foster child. Yeah, so there the was state. a lot of that happening with Jonestown, and then Jim Jones was just pocketing the cash. So there was a lot, and like the Jonestown also had. Like, you know, if you were a drug addict, they had drug addict programs. One different of the first. programs, right? Yeah, 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 one of the first of its kind. So, you know, Joe does kind of try in the beginning. <laughs> During the summer in 77, he called the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown, and he said that 20 children are being held illegally in Jonestown. On September the 6th, the embassy reports further contact with investigator Mazer, Ari, the custody of the children, and the Guyana embassy in Washington, D.C. received similar calls from Joe. Someone claiming to be the attorney general of the United States also called the embassy and reported that the People's Temple had abducted 20 children. And the embassy then notified uh, Guyana Minister of Foreign Affairs, Fred Wills. So Joe says... For a year, I wrote letters to the district attorney and probation office, but I was basically told uh, to drop dead. And then just days after the Jonestown massacre, he was quoted as saying, it wasn't a big enough issue. Don't you think he probably has a very gravelly voice? Oh, yeah, I think he'll be kind of sexy. I was basically told to drop dead. He's kind of like Clint Eastwood, isn't he? This, I'm getting, he's like a Clint Eastwood kind of character. Yeah, I could kind of see that, or like Mike Hammer. Who's Mike Hammer? Stacy Keach. Do you, I don't know if you. Oh, we've had this conversation. Americans before. would know who. This I don't guy know is. who Stacy Keach is. Stacy Keach was like um, he was a football player, but then he became an actor. Oh. And so he was Mike Hammer, this noir detective. And he was oh. a tough guy, and he like had this gravelly voice. He is that a telly a show? Yeah, it was a telly show in like the early eighties. What's it called? Mike, Mike Hammer. Hammer. Yeah. yeah, I've never heard of it, but that's. A I great... loved it when I was a kid. It's nearly like a porn star name. Sure, it's a gay porn star name. Mike Hammer. <laughs> My Hammer. I you like got it. hammered, babe. bitch. <laughs> Yours was nice. So he learned that San Francisco Examiner reporter Tim Reiterman was also investigating Jim Jones and the temple, and he asked for a meeting with Reiterman. So in the book Raven, he recalls that Mazer really wanted to do was to make a proposal. He had a plan, an ambitious plan for an exhibition to Guyana. Once there, he hoped to use U.S. court documents to wrestle some eight children from the temple on behalf of their parents or their guardians. 
And he was basically saying, can the examiner cover my trip if the examiner's going to pay for everything? And Tim and the newspaper are not going to touch this crazy man with his crazy fucking idea. I wonder no how way. much he was asking for. Oh, he'll have been asking for <laughs> thousands, I bet. He went on public radio shows to discuss what was happening in Jonestown. And as reported in the uh, very flowery piece in the Berkeley Barb in September of 77, they revealed that Mazer had hired one of the largest public relation firms in San Francisco to, con- to coordinate a publicity campaign against the temple and its minister, Reverend Jim Jones. The piece also outed Mazer's past for having been arrested at least eight times across three separate states. So the article, instead of bashing Jones, actually went to then discredit the mills and the concerned relatives. And it kind of questioned how a career criminal could get a PI license, which is still very, like, no one knows how. Yeah, it kind of flipped on him. Like, the reverse happened here, what he was trying to do. But I think the guy who wrote the article, Al Silverstein, yeah. was a sympathizer for with Jim Jones. He probably was in yeah. the pocket of the temple. because. I think so. The temple of PR masters themselves. and Well, the influence Jim Jones had in that area. Oh, it was huge. I, I mean, mean, it was vast. He helped get um, Mayor Marconi. Mas- I can yeah, Mayor Marconi. And Harvey Milk was a supporter yeah. of Jim Jones. But I mean, they- he was very influential. He had like contacts throughout like uh, the you know, Bay Area or Bay Area politics. So, I mean, he knew what he was doing. He, he knew which strings he had to pull. Yeah. So, I think he probably even knew... That uh, what Mazer was up to here and then pulled some strings, went to Berkeley Bar and was like, now this is the, the real story. Yeah. So they are masters of PR and they spin it that Mazer was an agent for the Nazi elite Interpol and they printed a salacious flyer to pass around to like People's Temple's members. So the flyer reads, who is Joe Mazer? He is a man with a lengthy criminal record. He has served time in jails in free states on a variety of charges, bogus checks and fraud, and he has violated probation and parole on free occasions by committing more crimes. So the Californian ad- Adult Authority Report in 1970, it evaluates Mazer as a smooth con man with an insatiable desire to get ahead. He is cunning, well-educated, and so well-versed in the law that he had five attorneys in the Pomona area convinced that he had a law degree. It is felt that the subject is a menace to the community. Joseph Mazer is now under intense investigation. His Interpol connections are only the beginning. We will not stop until we have exposed every detail of his inhumane attempt to destroy a great humanitarian leader. Yeah, what a great humanitarian Humanitarian Jim Jones is. Joe was actually never a member of Interpol, but it, it is important to know that Interpol, it really was a Nazi organization. Yeah, a lot of people aren't aware of that, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Its vice president in the 30s and the 40s was Nazi general um, Kurt uh, Deluge. I'm saying that in French way, not the German way. He's executed later for war crimes. During Hitler's power period, Interpol was headquartered in Berlin. And in 1968, uh, Paul Dickoff, Paul Dickoff, <laughs> He's a former henchman in Hitler's security police. He's elected president. During his reign, the organization becomes super affluent due to large contributions by the free member nations during his tenure. Venezuela, um, Brazil, and Switzerland. So these are all countries that sheltered Nazis after the storm during, you know, after World War II. Well, so Interpol started in Vienna. So yeah. it's like whoever conquered Vienna is pretty mm-hmm. much in charge of Interpol. Uh, but they shared its headquarters with the Gestapo during World War II. And Hoover recognized them. Yeah. You know, Edgar Hoover was like, yeah, we got to be down with Interpol. It's all right. 
Uh, but they operated as a division within the Nazi security police. And there were two Nazi war criminals, Heydrich yes, and my Ernst uh, Kaltenbrunner were the presidents of Interpol at the time. Yeah, good for you, Heydrich. What can't you do? But I read that the right-wing bias, though, of Interpol continued well after the war. And so in 1963, Jean Nepote um, was elected uh, Interpol's president, and he had collaborated with uh, the France collaborationist Vichy government uh, during the war. Yeah. And then in 68, Interpol elected Paul uh, Dickhoff Dick as its president. And, um, and although it was discovered that Dickhoff had been an SS officer in the war— I mean, he had worked in the in the same villa that Interpol and the Gestapo were headquartered. He still remained president until 1972. Oh, you know, it's just his past. He's doing a really good job. You know, just let him be. It's just and a Nazi. Interpol's interest, I, I'm hardly a coincidence, Interpol's interest in Nazi war criminals was virtually non-existent during the 50s and 60s when they could have actually caught a lot of these uh, former SS um, officials. Yeah, because they're being paid off by the Nazis. Oh, That's yeah. why. <laughs> Well, I think there's the a bit Nazis. of a cover-up here. The People's Temple, they begin their own investigation. Isn't it funny how we can work the Nazis into Jonestown? It's very fun. They begin their own investigation, and they dug up more juicy info on Joe than he ever could have got on them, because they're masters at it by this point in the organization. Their files, alongside all their other bookkeeping and admin work, it's organized, it's reviewed, it's eventually released under the Freedom of Information Act. And these files give everyone a deeper look into Jonestown than any 60-minute documentary or film with Leonardo DiCaprio that could happen could ever do. They also reveal much about the temple itself, including how the temple was able to even obtain sensitive and confidential records on like their would-be adversary. So as an example, People's Temple had a copy of his official and extensive arrest and prison records. So his rap sheet reveals that on June the 25th, 65, Mazur had pleaded guilty to a felony fictitious check charge as well as a felony, felony bad check charge and was sentenced to a period of six months to 14 years in prison, which is very like scope. That's a yeah, scope, I was about isn't it? It's rather harsh for, uh, you know, a felony. he must have had a record, though, at the time. Yeah. But yeah, from six months to 14 years, it's like, it's like uh, it's a you've, pretty wide range. Exactly, there. Yeah, I think it's weird. The records also state that he had been a difficult inmate. He was never physically violent, but he knew how to make life difficult for guards, staff, and fellow inmates. So I think he's just a bit of a wanker. He knew how to play the rules. He claimed problems with his eyesight, but he refused to let prison doctors help him. And it was noted in his files that a guard had seen Mazer reading a newspaper with only the aid of the colored glasses, which he wears all the time. So was his eye actually damaged? I do believe one of his eyes was actually damaged, but he kind of reminds me, remember Dr. Jacoby in uh, Twin Peaks? And he's oh, yeah. got one green lens and one red lens. That's Joe Mazer. You know, I was trying to figure out what happened to, to Mazer's eye and I couldn't, fi- I couldn't find anything about it. I, so I read through the whole um, FBI file report that they had, uh, that obviously Jonestown had kept on Mazer. And it's very difficult to find out anything about his beginnings or what he just kind of just appears one day. He's yeah, like, he's a mysterious figure. He's a grifter. So he's paroled in mid-February in 1970, and he's hired as a research assistant for a law firm, which is very weird considering he's a class criminal and he's just come out the clink. And he's not able to stay out of trouble for very long. His parole is revoked on January the 8th, 1971, after he was caught bouncing more rubber checks, and he was drawing welfare whilst being employed. And he took out a bunch of credit cards without his parole officer's consent. Back to jail for Joe. He's a shyster. 
So this is when he was sent to Vacaville and he claimed that a fall there resulted in a cystic kind of like tumor at the base of his brain, which authorities told him could cause death if he did not receive immediate treatment. Well, he didn't receive immediate treatment, so presumably the fall wasn't that bad in the jail. (laughs) So, you know, Vacaville, Manson uh, would call it home for a decade, kind of right after the murders. And this is where Ed Kemper has been locked up for a very, very, very long time. So, yeah, Manson went to, didn't he go to San Quentin he for did. a stint? He was there, like, kind of straight away, but after the murders in the 70s, he went to Vacaville pretty much to the is, 80s. Is the prison in Vacaville called Corcoran? That's the woman's prison, isn't it? Isn't it I'm not Cochran's sure. women? I, I'm not sure. I, I thought Manson was in Corcoran, so I'm not He I'm probably not. He did go through a few prisons. He wasn't just in San Quentin. Yeah. So with this in like inside of info and using like moles to work out the money was on his mind, they came up with several ways to switch his loyalty towards Jim Jones. The way Joe's tells it is that in September of 77, when the Berkeley Barb article was doing the rounds, he actually made a super secret trip to Jonestown to spy on the community. Apparently, this trip was so secretive that the U.S. Embassy didn't catch on, although they are going to note his visit the following year. This was also the trip he apparently planned to lead a sniper raid to kidnap all the children and kill all the adults of Jonestown. Was this in his proposal that he wanted the examiner to pay for? Yeah, basically. I'm going (laughs) to snatch all these kids. Either way, it was in 77 when he becomes a turncoat. He said he found the conditions and treatment at Jonestown nowhere near as bad as Temple Defectors had made out. And so he eventually switches allegiances, although he's never going to gain full trust of Jim Jones. In various tapes from September of 78, Jones describes the investigator as the former conspirator who is now an informer and a possible double agent or a provocateur. I love that word. And he warns Jonestown residents not to volunteer any information to this man during his visit. Well, I can understand why uh, Jim Jones wouldn't trust him. Right. I, mean, I think Jim Jones know. knows he's a Jim Jones is a grifter and I think he can spot yeah, another grifter. I think grifter. he can spot another grifter. And that's the thing with Mazer. I don't think he has any allegiance. I think his only allegiance is to himself. Yeah, and to money. I think he's just a self-serving grifter. Right. So no one trusts Mazer, the concerned relatives or the temple, but both sides are kind of depending upon him for information on the other. So he is like, he's a needed character. The Temple hired journalist and screenwriter Don Freed, who is best known for Executive Action, which was released in 73, which dramatizes a conspiracy theory about the JFK assassination. Obviously, I've never seen this movie. Is it an anger me? <laughs> Sounds like it'd piss you off. Yes. With his lawyer buddy, Mark Lane, who actually at one point would be representing the best of humanity because he represents Holocaust denier and anti-Semite Willis Cartu and his notorious Liberty Lobby great job and one of their jobs is to put out this maze of fire yeah carto is a real shining beacon of truth you know if he hadn't died in 2015 i imagine he'd be very popular with the current republican that's party that's when though. he died 2015 holy fuck yeah wow i know he only he died not that long ago yeah that's crazy that guy's a real prick um but don freed is a very interesting character i did a little research on him right, I don't know much so about him. did you know don freed was a member of the friends of the black panthers which oh, is a wow. group of white supporters of, of the, the Black, Black Panther Panthers. movement. They're yeah, called like the, Friends of the Panthers. Yeah, like the MC5. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a close friend of Huey Percy Newton, a political activist and founding member of the Black Panther Party. And Freed acted as one of the unofficial historians of the Black Panther Party and served as one of the advisor to uh, Newton's doctoral thesis. 
at uh, UC uh, Berkeley. It's funny you mention Huey P. Newton because obviously that's where Jim Jones took Revolutionary Suicide from. He took it from Huey P. Newton's book. Oh, is that where you got that? Yeah, Revolutionary Suicide all came from Huey, Huey P. connection. Yeah. So Freed also wrote a book that you might be interested in Ooh. called Killing Time, <gasps> the first full investigation of the unsolved murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. I'm going to totally get it. Well, maybe. Well, I it's think also this would not also unsolved. piss you off because it's a very controversial book. Oh, does he say that it wasn't OJ? Yeah, Ron Goldman's dad called him up and uh, cursed him out. All right, well, like, I'm not going to buy it then because we all know who killed Ron Goldman. Yeah, well, um, Freed has uh, he he looks in he does some research into the O.J. Simpson double murder case and he maintains that the prosecution was shackled by their obsession with O.J. as a berserk Othello. <laughs> he says he's a they they try to portray him as this jealous lone killer, but in their estimate, Simpson's alibi certainly has the ring of truth. How? And they use detailed timelines and maps and they propose all these different scenarios. Uh, to explain the 1994 murders of Nicole Brown, Simpsons, and Ronald Goldman. Some scenarios posit two killers, with Simpson as a co-conspirator yeah. or a bystander. In other scenarios, Goldman was the primary target. How? And they say he was uh, involved with like drug and mob-related violence, so it was a hit. Another theory that they, they posit here is that a professional assassin employed by a drug cartel where Goldman got his drugs from committed the murders. And then they sift through like numerous details that their own investigation team reportedly uncovered, plus evidence that, in their opinion, was purposely unexplored by the LAPD. But I don't know the presentation of the book. It, the critics at least say that it relies too much on anonymous sources, so that kind of weakens the credibility. There's a, I'm sure it's still up on YouTube, but um, Vincent Bulawsi, you know who did Helter Skelter. I know loads of people are like, oh my god, Tom Neal's book, Hel- uh, Vincent Bulawsi is such a jerk. I really like Vincent Bulawsi, but he goes through. It's like a four-hour video, and he does the prosecution of like OJ as if he was prosecuting him. I've never seen that. It's on YouTube. Yeah, it's really good, and like all evidence points towards OJ. And if I had been the Goldman family, I would have been suing like a motherfucker. <laughs> One of my, the only reason I'm still on Twitter mainly is because I just love um, like hassling OJ. Well, a lot of people don't realize one of uh, Kate Rambo's favorite pastimes is just just terrorizing. You just basically fuck with OJ every day. As soon as OJ puts up a video, I just wait for him to say like one key word, and I'm just like, oh yeah, that was a great defensive linebacker. Guess guess Ron <laughs> Goldman wasn't fast enough to defend himself against you, and then I'll put like a little knife and emoji. I would love him to block me so I can say that OJ Simpson blocked me, but he hasn't yet. Yeah, I don't think he really cares. I don't think he cares either, yeah. but like he's a dick and he fucking murdered two people. <laughs> so alongside a temple lawyer aide, they meet for a casual business lunch at the very famous St. Francis Hotel, which is also very haunted, where Freed told Joe that pursuing the possibility of a movie deal is part of his PR campaign. You know, uh, we stayed at the St. Francis. I know. I really when, liked uh, it. Your first visit to uh, San Francisco. San Francisco. We, yeah, my sister, I think, got us a hookup at the St. Francis. It's the Fat Yabuckle Hotel. No, that, is it not? No, that's a different hotel. That is uh, the one with the Tonga Hut. Oh. I get the name of that one. We stayed at the St. Francis Drake off of uh, Powell. Really nice, great yeah. hotel. Survived the earthquake. So the movie is going to be what they said, a showcase piece of Jonestown, 
detailing the work of the People's Temple in Guyana and presenting it in a really positive light. Freed said that director Paul uh, Jarico had already signed on to the picture and that script had been developed. According to Freed, Mesa would be an ambiguous character in the film. For instance, it is conceivable that you could be a resource person for the film on a totally anonymous basis. Your part could exist as a person, an actor, or yourself. You could play that part. You could have a credit. You could appear very much in the front. You could appear in a press conference. In other words... There's a range of possibilities for you. Get on the casting couch. He sounds Joe. so Hollywood here. Yeah, he yeah. does. And imagine Joe, like his ego must have been <gasps> must have been out of control. The role of a lifetime. I'm ready for my close-up. So what's interesting here is Jones claimed that the community hosted many friends and family. Lots of celebrities Fuck would come off. to Jonestown. But in fact, very few outsiders ever set foot inside Jonestown. But one person who did was Donald Freed. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, Jim Jones wanted him to do this movie as like this kind of PR uh, piece for Jonestown. So they invited him in the summer of 1978, and the community spent weeks preparing for Freed's arrival. So night after night, Jones would grill the residents on the correct answers to the to questions give. Freed might ask them. Yeah. So he was prepping them. He's like, listen, if he's going to ask you a question, this is what you got to say. So anyway, I got a uh, some audio here that has Jim Jones, it's Jim Jones coaching everybody on, on how to respond to Freed's questions. Nice. All right, now I'm gonna ask you a question. How's the food here, madam? The food is wonderful. I don't know what wonderful means. What kind of food do you have? What, what, what kind of food well, do you have? We Please have, no, I'm, I'm just acting like a reporter. We have our own bread. We make our own bread. We have rice. We have no Oh, Christ sake. Don't name rice first, please. Because that's all they that ate. that damn woman said we never eat anything. Debbie said we never eat anything here but rice. So that I just forget the rice for the time being. Can't you think of something else? We got chicken, we Jesus chicken, Christ. We, we have pork, beef. Fish, we have eggs, fish. I like how he's coaching him. This is my favorite guy, though. Is uh, he's prepping this dude for uh, for I'm, I'm sure this question is going to come up. I see. Okay. Uh, tell me, do you put people in boxes here and bear them in boxes? Yes. Have you ever, ever buried anybody in boxes? No. Uh, I'd look more shocked. I'd look more shocked than that. <laughs> no, we haven't. You know, uh, I'd say by hell no. Or, Sakes not, huh? I'd say, what? Hell no. Somebody, what, what, what prompted that question? Say, some of these rotten news stories? Not everyone's a grifter like Jim Jones. They don't know how to lie properly. I'd be like, Dad, we did that last night. <laughs> and then we t- put some kids down the well, Dad. We do that every night. <laughs> Duh. So the people were told to refer to Jones as Jim, not Dad or Father, as they had in California, because that would appear cultish. So they were to tell Freed that their families all lived together in harmony. They didn't. And that they didn't believe in suicide because it's a very selfish act. Everyone was was supposed to smile constantly and make the victory sign, the V sign to each other every time they walked by. Yeah, like good socialists. <laughs> so after Freed arrived, uh, Jones like took him on a whole tour, bragged about the settlement's medical services, and encouraged him to get a physical exam. 
And he did. And Free later reported that during the exam, a nurse gave him eye drops that blurred his vision for more than 10 hours. Whoops. <laughs> While he found this odd, his interactions with Jones were much more concerning. So as the two men strolled along a pathway, Jones told Free that the results of his rectal exam indicated that he suffered from a type of gonorrhea that was only transmitted by homosexual encounters. And Freed looked at him it was just kind of like looked at him curiously. He was like, you know, I'm a recent widower and I'm not gay. And he said that to Jones and Jones just kind of brushed aside his protest, assuring Freed that he was open minded and that Jones said he himself had been forced to have sex with the male followers to keep them dedicated to the cause. Jim Jones is convinced that everyone was homosexual, apart from him. But he was like, I'm such a good dad that. If a man in this congregation needs fucked, I'll do it. And Jeannie Mills writes about it in her book. There's some salacious pages where he talks about men coming up to him. And there's a guy called Stan who comes up and offers himself to Jim Jones. And he hadn't even had an enema. And Jim was like, what the fuck? You didn't even clean your asshole for me. You know, sometimes Jim Jones is forced to, to commit sodomy. He had no choice. And he you know? was forced to go into porno theaters and whack <laughs> off the policeman. <laughs> so as Jones kept going into more and more detail about his sexual exploits, Freed became very uncomfortable. Yet he looked at all the smiling faces of the Jonestown residents and at the people flashing him the V sign he felt inspired. He said even though the temple leader was a bit off-putting, the community that he created appeared to be a great success. Well, he probably, you know what, in Jones's mind, I can see him thinking that um, this is a Hollywood guy. He's come here to make a movie. He's going to be gay. And I'm just going to shag him and then we can have make a great movie. <laughs> we'll have a great movie that we'll make together because that's how it works in Hollywood. Exactly. It kind of does. Couch. It kind of does. Yeah. <laughs> so Freed was offering Mazer the chance to like kind of star in the film or at very least to receive payment. The amount of like $25,000 was discussed for acting as a consultant. And then perhaps to sweeten the offer even more, Free told the investigator that his character in the film would be written as a hero. Obviously, all of this is harsh shit and Joe swallows it like he's a prize hooker who's been swallowing loads all her life. You got to take some advice from the fishes, Joe. You don't you bite unless the bait is good. No one even asked why he was working against Jim Jones. Rebecca Moore, who is co-manager of the Jonestown website and whose sisters, Annie and Carolyn, both of whom played major parts in the People's Temple. We don't have time to even go into that. Died in Jonestown. And she said about Mazer in her book, which is a really good book, A Sympathetic History of Jonestown, that he saw the People's Temple as a potential goldmine. And there is no doubt about that because when the massacre happened, they had about 30 million in the bank. Oh, in yeah. 1970s I think he was well aware money. Of their funds. Oh, yeah. So Mazer thought that the People's Temple could be a bottomless resource for him, a way that he could earn a great deal of money, whichever side of the fence he's on. You know, he's playing both sides, so he comes out on top. Any actual consideration from the individuals on either of the sides or what they were going through, he didn't really give a shit about. It's not paramount in his mind. No, he's self-serving. He's a grifter. He's just totally. trying to make money. And so... When he hired the largest public, public relations firm in San Francisco, he was getting them to coordinate a publicity campaign against the temple and uh, Jim Jones. And uh, he said he originally hired this firm to attract business from insurance companies. But then the People's Temple matter came out, so he turned to them for help. But um, 
A source close to the public relations firm told that investigative piece in Barb that Mazur came to the company saying he wanted to become San Francisco's next Hal Lipset, who's a famous investigator, and that the People's Temple controversy presented an excellent opportunity to garner publicity. So this guy was just taking this as a gift horse. Yeah. He was like, I'm just going to run with this. I don't think he gave a shit about the people. No, he didn't. Yeah, I don't think he gave a shit about Jim Jones. He'd play either side for his own to interest. come out on top. Yeah. Yeah. And he wanted to come out as a hero, and that's the way he was going to be, a hero investigative uh, investigator. So as for this meeting with Freed, uh, he didn't let his feelings be known at the end of the meeting. But now, you know, he's like, I'm going to go and visit Jonestown. I'm going to go as Jim Jones's guest. I'm going to be paid by Jim Jones to go there. And I think that speaks a lot of volumes. So after the deaths at Jonestown, he said he never even considered working for Jim Jones. And he went there out of curiosity. Sure. Chinny reckon. Yeah, sure. Chinny reckon, Joe. The files recovered at Jonestown, they tell a very different story. There's numerous conversations recorded and then transcribed through the lifeline at Jonestown. And this is the ham radio. Claiming that he knew a defector had stolen a million dollars from Jones, he said he would work from the temple recovering the money. He's also really complimentary about Jimmy, saying, everyone seems to have found out who the bad guys are. You can tell Jim that I took off the black paint that I had painted on his hat and it's now white. So that's how he talked. Whatever that means. <laughs> So Jim Jones, he's paranoid, he's fat, he's full of all kinds of really fun prescriptions. He's not buying what he's selling. So here he is mentioning Joe's upcoming visit, and he's basically warning the residents how to act around Joe. How do we clearly identify the agents in our project and in Guyana? Because he will know, or might know, if he had at that level. This is so we can tell where he's going with us. At this point, he should volunteer about the man in immigration here that's a CIA agent, if he is sincere. We want to know what he knows about Chris Lewis's death. Why does Major hate Timothy O. Stone so bad? That was one of the reasons he came over to our side. He hated him because he considered him a sick man and an evil man. What are Stone's other activities that don't involve PT? We want to know what connections he's had with Wackenhut, a CIA front. That's spelled W-A-C-K-E-N-H-U-T. Roseville. Why I was interested in the little community of Roseville, which we know he was. The Redwood Title Company just a few days yeah, ago. Yeah, just cut him off because like, he's going to ramble on forever not, now. This is a Jim Jones' sermons. And you can hear, like, the barbiturate slur in his voice now. Yeah, it, it almost didn't even sound like it there. Well, one of the reasons the tapes sound weird is because the, t- the temple was the cheap. audio quality, too. Yeah, but they would re-record over all their tapes when they felt it was like, you know, we don't need the information on this anymore. So that's why... So, so it's just tape being used multiple times. Yeah, and loads of people say that that's evidence of a CIA cover-up, but it's not. But you can hear the slur. By this time, he is just full of barbiturates. It's like Elvis in the late 70s. Fuck yeah, he is. So Jones is going to go to his death filled with distrust for Joe. In fact, Joe's visit and the paranoia caused only fueled the fire that's going to lead to the deaths on November the 18th because the stage is set for murder by misdirection, disinformation, deception, smears, threats of violence, dirty strunts and tricks, the lot of it. Joe adds to this. 
Jones's last thoughts projected onto his people who would fall before him in death were about the ones who had betrayed him, including Jeannie and Al Mills. On the death tape, he says, we've been so betrayed. We've been so terribly betrayed. Alongside Tim Stowen. Now, he was mentioning Tim Stowen in that um, clip then. We do not have time in this podcast to even mention the Stowens. That's a whole other kettle of like Jonestown law. But he blames Deanna Myrtle, a.k.a. Jeannie, saying of their suicides. But people in San Francisco will not be idle over this and not take our death in vain. So back in the Bay Area after the massacre, the Human Freedom Center was put under 24-hour police surveillance because of these rumors of vengeful temple members who were wanting everyone to die for dad. They're terrified, but they're also mourning the loss of everyone that they had ever known, especially like their kids, like, you know, Eddie and Daphne, who had grown up in the church. Like, I can't imagine it. You've lost everyone you've ever met or been friends with. Yeah, I mean, it's your whole life at that point. But the kill squads never came and life kind of returns to a new normal. And Jeannie, Al and the younger two kids, uh, Daphne and Eddie, they lived in a single story cottage style home at 2731 at Woolsey Street. And the larger property on the lot was the Elmwood, Re- Elmwood Rest Home that they ran. And it's still there. It's still exactly the same. And um, this is where Al's mum was also currently staying. A friend reported to the San Francisco Gazette. They felt they weren't going to live in fear anymore and I'd never seen them happier, which spells doom for me if your friend is in the Gazette saying that. So a little over a year since the actual massacre, Tuesday, February the 26th, 1980, it's a normal day for the Mills family. At 5 p.m., they went to the care home for dinner, which they often did. And Eddie, who was 17, he's hanging out back home with a few friends. And the friends recalled that Eddie was in a really good mood. Uh, It was a kind of cold night. The family built uh, a fire in the living room. At 9 p.m., Al's mother, who lived in the care home, she rang the Berkeley police and she stood outside the cottage impatiently waiting for them to arrive. There were bullet holes in the bathroom door. Behind it, they found Jeannie crouched on the floor. She'd been fatally shot in the head. In the parents' bedroom, Al was lying face down on the floor. He too had received a single fatal shot to the forehead. This is execution style. Daphine, who was only 16, she's alive, but just barely. Police found her sp- laid across her parents' bed. She also had a bullet in her temple. She's rushed to a hospital where she succumbs to her wounds. So her friends said that she had dreamed of moving away to a new place where her past wouldn't follow her. So she kind of got her wish in a horrible (laughs) roundabout way. Now, Eddie, he's unharmed. He says that he smoked a little weed, he had taken a shower, and he was just watching some TV in his bedroom, which apparently covered up the sound of numerous gunshots. Said that TV up pretty loudly. Uh-huh, Eddie. This kind of reminds me of Willie Garretson, the caretaker at Cielo. Like, obviously, Willie is innocent, and he's just sat listening to music. But while he's sat listening to music in his, like, little house, well, you know, five people are being murdered outside. Yeah, but he was in a little shack in the back, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. If, if people were getting shot, I think he might have heard it. But They did get shot at Cielo. Jay oh, yeah, Sebring. Yeah, I guess uh, Sebring yeah. did. So and did Fre- uh, the, the, the driver of the, uh, the Stephen car, Parent too. Got yeah, shot, Stephen yeah. Parent. Fear quickly spreads amongst the survivors and detectives are faced with dozens of suspects, obviously including Eddie. So Eddie, by all accounts, has been a really reserved kid. Even after his childhood, he'd been very sickly, but his health had improved once they'd left the temple. Uh, This is probably because Jim Jones was like, you don't need doctors. You just need a picture of me to bless you. But his mother described him in her memoir as the solitary sort who preferred his own company up in his room, all alone, reading. 
But I mean, I was like that. I also wasn't planning a murder. Friends told reporters that they had never known Eddie to be hostile. And they said if ever Eddie got hold of a gun, I don't think he would even know how to fire it. He's a really nonviolent, quiet guy. And you have to know him to understand. Maybe he's also what we would call an incel. I mean, possibly. It's just weird that someone would target the parents after Jonestown. Like, who would do this? There, uh, there are actually a lot of murders after Jonestown. A lot of them. We could, do, we could probably do an episode on that one day. This yeah, is just one of them. I just, but I mean, who is targeting them? Well, I, it's even temple, temple members, yeah. but a lot of them do snap, and there's a lot of them who commit more murders. But I'm surprised that Al and Jeannie weren't murdered before, right? You know, the massacre at Jonestown. Maybe, but you could say that Eddie, like, if we're going to pin the blame on Eddie, he's grown up in the temple, and now he's gone through this really, like, life-changing thing where everything he's ever known has suddenly stopped. And he could sit there and think, if only my parents hadn't fucking opened up that human freedom center, then everything I'd ever known. Because maybe he loved Jonestown, you know? Or maybe he didn't really care. He's a 17-year-old. But I do think there's another factor that might have played into that might have motivated him to murder his parents right so he was found to have gunpowder residue on his hands but it was a really small amount and obviously just going about the house touching shit could give you gunpowder the guns inside the house had also not been fired recently so there's no murder weapons on site with no witnesses no hard evidence they can't keep eddie he's released and a year went by, he made a rare public statement dismissing rumors that he was a dopehead saying that he had only had like one hit of dope. You know, I only inhaled once. And then when, when asked whom he thought had killed his family, he just simply said, I don't know. I don't know. Eddie collected some insurance money and he and the murder of the mills, it faded from public consciousness, just becoming another weird story attached to Jonestown. The case isn't being investigated, and Eddie was actually rearrested for more information regarding it in 2005, but he's released, and he now lives in Japan with his wife and two children. And also, I've got to point out that his older sister, who was also out the house at the time, fully supports that Eddie didn't do the murders. Yeah, I doubt he did the murders as well. But the other factor that might have been a motivating uh, force for him is that in 83... He received the largest share of the mill's almost $500,000 estate. Yeah. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of money at that time. So Eddie was 20. He was given almost $247,000. And his four stepsisters and stepbrother each inherited $52,000. Eddie received most of the estate because of the unique circumstances surrounding his parents' deaths and because he was Mrs. Mill's only son by a first marriage. Uh, Mill's step-siblings were Al Mill's children by a previous marriage, so the estate was split half and half between each parent's children instead of shared equally among all six. Do you think he would have known that, though? Because I don't think I would have known that. He might have been aware that his parents were worth a lot of money. I think he would be aware because um, Al and Jeannie Mills were very clever. They never turned over their full property to the church like most people did, so they'd always taken, they'd always had a care home, they'd always had an income from that. Well, that was one of the reasons, too, that they defected, is be, or at least soured on the People's Temple, is because of some of the property disputes. Yeah, which like happened. Jim Jones was like, no, you got to sell, you got to give that property, you got to give the deed to your land to me. And they're like, nah, we don't think so. Yeah. So that's why they started questioning, you know, what's being in this on. cult and what's going on here and his motivations. Um, I don't know. I, I doubt, I don't think a 17-year-old kid would murder his parents. But I kind of think maybe a 17-year-old kid could conspire with someone else who knew, possibly. 
what could have happened. It, it could have happened. But I mean, you know, at the same time, imagine there's a lot of bitterness towards the mills. I mean, Jones yes. spent hours in his sermons, you know, berating uh, them. Yeah, berating them and disparaging them and saying that they're, you know, they're the people who are as evil. So I mean, I mean, some people, you know, probably didn't forget that. Wouldn't it be hilarious if, like, it turned out that Marshall Anthony was actually, um, like, the love child of Jim Jones, and he'd done this murder, and that's why he lives in Japan now. Or what if Marshall Anthony's real name is Eddie Mills? <gasps> dun dun dun! Uh, Marshall Anthony, please ring in to confirm. <laughs> yes or no? So Al, Jeannie, and uh, Daphne Mills, they're all buried together at Oakmont Memorial Lane in uh, Lafayette. Their tombstones bear the names they took after leaving People's Temple. Al's headstone is engraved with the words, he fought for freedom. And Jeannie and her daughters just simply say mother and daughter. So as for Joe, he sold his cash cow and he did the rounds on as many news programs as he could. And he's feeding all the reporters with loads of false information. He sullies the investigation. He too, like, uh, disappeared. He was really upset about it. That was until November the 15th, 1985, nearly seven years after Jonestown. He pops up again. His wife and stepmother to his five children, 38-year-old Nancy Lou Mazer, she calls the um, Taraville police station at 3.30 a.m. She says, I just shot my husband, and if you don't get here in a hurry, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> uh, by the time the clam chowder eating police arrived at the apartment on La Playa Street... Lol. Do you know where La Playa Street is? Yeah, La Playa. It's oh, no, it's La Playa, mate. Come on, don't say La Playa. It's La Playa. It's La Playa, and it's out by uh, Ocean Beach. It's I know La- exactly where this area is. It's La Playa. <laughs> um, she meets him at the door with a pistol in her hand, and 46-year-old Joe Mazer, he's dead on his bed, and his chest is filled with hot lead. The grift of Joe Mazer has come to an end. He insist- she actually insists on being booked under her birth name, Nancy Lou Thompson, and said that she shot him in self-defense. The marriage is barely a year old at the time of the murder. A fitting end to that grifter. Uh, so I read that in the, in the book, The Murders That Made Us, uh, which came out in 2021 by uh, author Bob Calhoun, he reported that Nancy Lou said that in the past, Mazur had threatened to kill her and her son and throw them both in the bay. But she wouldn't say much more about what led up to the shooting. I think he was, I think it was domestic violence. Oh, totally. He's an alcoholic. I think he's a wife beater. Yeah. Yeah. So former attorney to Reverend James Warren Jones, Charles uh, Gary, he steps in to represent her. She's acquitted in August of 86. So Mays is like a theatrical fabricator. He's an agent of chaos and will never know his true intentions with Jonestown. Any knowledge or secrets went to the grave of him that day that Nancy Lou reached the end of her line. His remains are as mysterious as his beginnings. They're unknown. Um, but he should maybe be added to the memorial list in Oakland as he's just one of the many people that spurned on a mad, paranoid, drug and sex addicted megalomaniac. I wonder what happened to uh, the wife, though, and the son. I tried looking and then I tried looking for all his children and it's just you like... Couldn't find anything? Couldn't find anything. And mm. I was even doing like find grave and like local newspapers. It's very difficult. So Jim Jones is a man who had his finger on the trigger on a vat of cyanide with a core group of ladies who begged to die by his side. And they left this world not as socialist revolutionaries, but as sad suicides and unsolved murders. And they leave behind a very misunderstood macabre message that has resonated longer than any of his sermons, that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. 
And I do just want to give it as another thanks to the alternative considerations of Jonestown and the People's Temple maintained by the Department of Religious Studies at San Diego State University. Please give me a job for making so much information on the People's Temple freely available. Yeah, I did think that was odd that it's affiliated with San Diego State. Like, it's just, it's yeah. strange. Like, and so I was looking, I was reading about the website. Um, and yeah, it's, I mean, it's very thorough. It's vast. It's vast. I mean, there's so many, and they update it and they, they keep it relevant. Uh, but it's an educational informational website that's intended to present a wide diversity of viewpoints. So there's some controversial viewpoints that they present there too. Certainly. And, uh, but the opinions that are published on the site, they, they have this caveat that it, they're not endorsed or affiliated with San Diego State University or the manager of the site. It just reflects a commitment to the principle of free expression. So it's amazing that they're probably not even making any money off of this. Of course they're not. But it's, I mean, if you want to find all the survivors, all the survivors are on this website who've written vast amount of articles. And then they've got, you've got access to all the FBI files. You've got access to all the tapes. Yeah. Long may this website be. It's all the clips that we got. It kind of reminds me of like the glory days of the internet before things got like started getting wrecked. Like this is a this is how the internet should be in my mind. I'm I'm just surprised that and actually kind of impressed with San Diego State University. I know, <laughs> to good be for honest. them. Well, uh, people stay. Um, um, uh, just just I just want to warn you that there's going to be pictures of Kate Rambo, um, probably wearing a sexy outfit at the uh, the cemetery. Evergreen Cemetery next to Jim Jones Jones's plaque. Just I'm just going to you're there in store be. for that. So I'm just just uh, forewarning you. It's gonna happen. All right. <laughs> you're gonna get banned from Facebook again. No, I won't. <laughs> it's fine. Anyway, we're gonna definitely have to check that out though this weekend because it's a good chance it might not be there next year. Yeah, I know. So Hopefully we'll not though. We'll see. Uh, People's episode 921 here of Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. Uh, But first, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. Fellas, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com and for a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. But that's not all. Oh no. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs three for a little inspiration plus a free extra gift so sensual we can't even mention it on the radio (laughs) and to top it all off we'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order and no we're not teasing so check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer get 50% off one item when you type diddle for the offer code upon checkout when you do you'll get three free DVDs a free extra gift and free shipping. Just use offer code DIDDLE at adamandeve.com. So, okay, Rambo, we get a couple phone calls to get to. Both of these calls are rather scatological. Oh, okay, because that ties in really nicely to Jonestown, does it? <laughs> There's a bit of a theme here. So uh, it, it's, they're very scatological phone calls. Um, the first one is, about, is a question about a very passionate sex act. Okay, so I'm listening to episode 919, and uh, uh, Kate, I want to welcome you to the United States. You really bring uh, some extra hotness to the nation. Um, but uh, 
D, you're talking about uh, some guy munching a gal's pussy while he's while she's taking the shit. Now this actually he was smelling the shit. Yeah, he wasn't munching her pussy. He was he had his face in between her legs. This I think we were talking about this on the second show. Was it second show? Possibly. It sounds like second no, show. No, no, no. You know what? I don't think this was the second show. I think this was on episode nine nineteen. It was a phone call that brought this up. Right. But anyway, a couple episodes ago. This guy wasn't licking her box. What he was doing is he had his face in between her legs, smelling her shit, smelling her fecal matter and masturbating. So right. that was just the one way he got off is just the smell of her shitting. Right. So so correction. <laughs> This reminds me of something that I I posed this question to before um, on the Is That Gay segment. Um, <gasps> Many moons ago. The Blumpkin. <laughs> now, what that is, is a man getting a blowjob while he's taking a shit. You know, Kate Rambo just heard that term. What did I tell you about Blumpkin? You told me the other day. No, it was only heard. like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, You'd never you heard that you term. Yeah, because you were saying you wanted to start a cuddly toy range called Blumpkin. <laughs> but I thought, and I was wondering, like, do you have like some kind of weird moon man British term for this? Because you guys have a Cumbrian term for everything, but apparently not. No, I mean, there's probably a viz term for this Blumpkin, but I am not well versed in the viz. I'm sure British people do this. I'm sure British people are rank. Of course they'll do. You don't think blumpkin. King Charles has ever had a blumpkin from Camille? He pro- Camilla. And Camilla, yes. whatever. He pro- well, he wanted to be her tampon, so it wouldn't surprise I'm sure her. he's got you know, at least one royal blumpkin on the those, throne. With those sausage fingers up inside her, it's probably like she's giving birth to a lot of shits. <laughs> now, the question is, who is getting the blumpkin? Is it... The blower or the blowee. Ah. So, uh, yeah, I just I just had to uh, reprise this uh, question because you, you you never really answered it. I mean, you you discussed it with some porn star you were talking to, talking to at the time, but uh, you never really answered the question. So, a blumpkin is a man getting a blowjob while while he's taking his shit. Who is receiving the blumpkin, the 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 guy getting sucked off, or the person doing the sucking? Anyway, um, keep it sick, keep it wrong. Look at my balls. I love this well, caller. I think I it's all semantics he, here, but I love the fact that for years he's just like never answered my question about the bumpkin, and now he's like, now is my time. Do you think he's like loses sleep over this? Like he's up at night just vexed about like who is who's getting the bumpkin, the giver or the receiver? I mean, this you is know, the question he brings up every Thanksgiving and Christmas with his family. And I actually I do fully endorse that. I suggest you do bring this up on Christmas. Bumpkin. Yeah. I think I'm going to dive in here because I'm going to give him an answer you might not like. I think Blumpkin is the act and you are Blumpkiners when you participate in the act of a Blumpkin. Well, I, do, I, I kind of agree with you on that one, but I think the, the act of getting a Blumpkin involves two people. So the guy who's getting his dick sucked while he's taking shit, he's getting a Blumpkin. And the, and the, is, is the woman who's sucking his dick while he's taking shit, or man, is giving a Blumpkin. So he's the Blumpkiner. It's, it's kind of like a blowjob. I mean, you're getting a blowjob. You would be 
you'd either be getting a blowjob or giving a blowjob. But the fact that this is occurring while you're, you know, curling one out on the toilet, you're getting a blumpkin, blumpkin. or giving a blumpkin. I would, yeah, I would have to pluralize it and say that you're a blumpkinner if you engage in the act of be of doing a blumpkin. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, the you're blowy or the blower, you know, it's the blowy or the blower. So it's like, I think one person is, who's receiving the blump, who's receiving the blumpkin is the person taking a shit and the person giving the blumpkin is the person blowing the person. So in a donkey punch, if you're the person who receives the donkey punch, what are you called? Over the, you know. An asshole. Passed out. <laughs> well, no, because you're the one. Prick. You're the one who gets hit and passed out. Oh, okay, receiving one. I, yeah. I, I guess the giver of the donkey punch would be an asshole. I think the donkey punch is Are you the, the donkey? Because you get punched out? No, no we should be punching the, donkeys. No, it's, it's the punch. The punch itself is a donkey punch. And I think it's because it's come from behind. So is that like the legit name for the, for the throw? Like if a boxer does it to somebody, the announcer's like, look at that donkey punch from well, him. I don't think a boxer has his dick in the person's ass no but i'm saying is it is it a legitimate punch in real life a donkey punch no a donkey or punch are is, you the donkey, a donkey and he's punching punch. you so you're the donkey and he's the person i can't even believe i'm you. explaining this i know what a the donkey, donkey punch, punch is. is when your dick is in the girl's ass and it all boys her, or boys and because you punch them by surprise, the sphincter tightens up and makes yeah. it a tighter fit. I know what a donkey... You don't have to explain... I've seen the movie. You don't have to yeah. explain what a donkey... So but, but this is what I'm saying question? to you. My question is, during the act of a donkey punch then, are you the donkey? Because you, if you receive the punch, does that make you the donkey? No, it, there's no donkey involved. No, it's but the, the, this the, is the like punch the itself is called the donkey punch. It's a stupid term. There's no... No one's a donkey... I There's think no the person donkey. who gets knocked out is the donkey. That's asinine. And the person... Asinine. <laughs> it really is. You said the other day when you had a bit of road rage that you were going to donkey punch the car in front of you. I didn't... Which is kind of gay. Well, I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. I think it was a woman. No, it was a man. I was saying... I was making a blanket statement. You said, this, I'm going to so donkey enraged. punch this guy in front enraged. of me. I didn't say this guy. I was like, you I'm going to donkey punch this asshole. In front of me. And it was a man. Or I didn't know if it was a guy or a woman. I said, it's I'm going to donkey business. punch this fool. That's what I said. It's and it was because business. this person was like, took a, took a left right in front of me without uh, using an indicator. No, I think they were just taking a legitimate left because you have Dickhead. you have road rage. I do have road rage. And that person <laughs> almost got donkey punched. <laughs> but yeah, there you go. Have you a question actually before we move on? Kate Rambo, have you ever given anyone a blumpkin? No, why would I ever give a blumpkin? I'll be a blumpkiner. No, I mean, it's about being good giving a game. Like if your boyfriend or husband um, was really into this sex act, you wouldn't do it? No, but I, I definitely remember during the early days of my tenure on this podcast where we were discussing this and I was like, sometimes when you have a really good shit, it can make you horny. Do you remember this? Hey, you said it, uh, just the widening of your sphincter. It can just like, it's just, Makes yeah. You wet. It can just make you like, just get a bit horny. And I definitely know I'm not the only person who thinks this. So maybe I do naturally have the ability to blumpkin, but I just don't think I could ever get past like, it's shit. And I just don't think the two should ever meet. Well, not to belabor this, but... What is the act? If a blumpkin is if you're sucking someone's dick the while they're getting... The blumpkin is the act. Yeah, yeah, no, but I'm saying the act of a blumpkin is sucking someone's dick while they're taking a shit. What if you're eating a girl out while she's take, taking a shit? 
What's that's, that? Is that still a blumpkin? There's probably I, that's a what I'm wondering. I don't know. I mean, is there another term for that? There definitely will be. We need to get on Urban Dictionary right now. So find it out. eating a girl out while she's taking a shit. That's the question to the sick and wrong audience. What's that called? All right, next uh, next call we have here, also <laughs> scatologically themed. Wonderful. Is, uh, yeah, a story from uh, Matt the Trucker. Calls oh. him the shit story. Hi, guys. Matt the Trucker here. I wasn't going to phone this in, but I'm four beers deep now, and I thought this might help with your call backlog. Thank you, Emphasis Matt. on the log. <laughs> so I was listening to the second show and listening to Dee's struggles with the hot chick blowing out the bathroom every day. Well, I'm trying to think of the what the reason why. Oh, you know what it was? It was Tim Ted. Tim Ted had a great Tim call. Tim Ted had a great phone call that we played on second show because it was a bit longer than usual. Well, I must point out here that sometimes we play uh, phone calls that are spice, too spicy for the show on the second show. And we do news stories on the second show because loads of people are like, oh, we miss when you used to do the news stories. Well, we do them on the Patreon now. So. Yeah, we do those in the Patreon. But also on second show, I'll play a call on second show if the caller asks me to play it on second show. Because it's too spicy. So we, sometimes if it's too spicy or if they just want to talk about it with like less of an audience. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. So I can understand that. But anyway, I think Tim Peg called in. Don't exactly remember the, the, the gist of the call, but I think it had something to do with shit. It was and so Yeah. And so uh, I was telling a story, which I know I've told in the main podcast, but when I worked at the East Bay Express years ago, there was this like really hot blonde girl that would go in like clockwork every morning, 9.30 a.m. and just blow out the bathroom and then walk out like triumphantly as if and and carefree. Like she didn't even care, even though that entire vicinity smelled like feces. We get into it on the section. She wouldn't even light a match or spray some perfume. (laughs) I think you've got problems, Dee. But last night I decided to stop in one of our illustrious motorway services overnight Get a kip and a shower. Walked into the shower. Get a what? A shower. Get a, a kip, kip and, and a shower. What's a kip? You don't know what a kip is. Is that a blumpkin in, in England? No, it's a sleep. Go for a kip. Oh, a kip is a having kip. a little sleep. K-I-P, yeah. All right. Open the door. And what the fuck is it in the corner? That's right. A big pile of shit. <laughs> Not just a little nugget or a little dingleberry, but a full-on pile of logs in the shower ah yeah exactly Ah. what kind of dirty bastard does that (laughs) right let's just get one thing straight it wasn't not have a shower in that shower (laughs) (laughs) i was just about to ask you did you just kind of kick the turns aside and just take a shower do you think somebody went in there and gave themselves an enema i mean sometimes when you gotta go you gotta go yeah, but wouldn't you be like, I'm going to go and get like a plastic bag and like I'll just scoop up my turds and leave? No, I would have crushed it into the drain. Oh, and then smashed it down. Into the drain, yeah. Yeah, with your I'm, toes. I'm polite. <laughs> you know, I have a sense of decorum. I would love to know, Matt, which motor services this happened at because we all know it wasn't T-Bay. <laughs> Brits know exactly what I'm talking about, T-Bay services. Another shower. All right, let's just get that out of the way now. Anyway. Yeah, big pile of logs, fucking grim. Some Eastern European driver having a shower in one of the other cubicles thought it was fucking hilarious. I've no idea why it's a big pile of shit in a shower. Um, But somehow 
I felt compelled to take a photograph, post it to the Discord, <laughs> and then phone it into the show. I can't remember this picture. What other podcast could make a grown man do this sort of thing? Fuck knows. Not many. Anyway, keep it sick, keep it wrong. I know Joe Rogan's podcast makes me shit myself frequently. I would love to <laughs> when I have the misfortune of listening to a clip. I think this uh, is the maybe one of the only podcasts where we actively encourage scat stories. But like on from the Ville, they even had like an old, you know, a whole section of like steel shits. Well, that was Steel's own shits. He that he was that very he proud post. of. You know, it's funny. I should ask Wackerly about this on the holiday show. But so when I lived with Wackerly in college. There are nine dudes and one girl in this one house. That poor girl. Yeah. Well, she was, I mean, she could drink us all under the table. I mean, but just like. She's just, very punk rock. Yeah, chick. I know. She's Anna. probably fucking cool. But just living with nine, I couldn't do it because boys are fucking messy and minging. Minging. The whole house would smell like boy B.O. and jizz. It smelled mostly like the gross beer that because we drank shitty beer like Natty Light or whatever beer you could have, and there's just cans everywhere and cigarettes everywhere. I'm sure do there that. was jizz. I mean, it was really gross. But the grossest thing about this place was the shower. So we had one bathroom for ten of you. Yeah, this one is like bathroom. slum conditions. I just would piss outside. That's like slum condition. It's fucking gross. This house. I mean, I lived in the basement and I paid I think one hundred fifty dollars a month. Yeah, you yeah. also look like a basement dweller. Yeah, I mean, it's actually a really nice place in the basement. But but anyway, this it wasn't even a real shower. It was like a makeshift shower that they kind of put in there. In this like, So one room had the toilet. The other room had this like makeshift shower and a sink. And it was like this really cheap plastic shower. Yes. And so in the shower was like a ring of mildew because no one ever cleaned oh. the bathroom. So you'd have to stand in the middle. I wore flip-flops and I would stand in the middle. But I remember one time, I, I wasn't home. I think I was at, I usually just showered at my girlfriend's. But uh, I remember I came home and everybody was in the living room. And Andy was one of like, he was kind of like the main housemate. He's the one who, he was probably the, the main tenant, like the master tenant. Was he's the he one not who cleaning him. the shower? Well, no, he was having a trial because everyone knew it was this guy who was in art school named Graham who looked like the type of dude who would shit in the shower. And so apparently, Graham. Everyone accused Graham of doing this. We could bring it up with Wackley to find out who actually did it, but it was a fucking log. It was like a log as big as like a my baby's forearm. Arm. Yeah. No, bigger. Fucking it was bigger out. than that. It was like this massive log. And it was just kind of just sitting in the shower and no one would clean it. And Graham's like, I didn't do it. So no one cleaned it for like two weeks. Fuck no off. one cleaned it. Yeah, and it eventually disintegrated and went down the drain. No, I would have been like, <laughs> all nine of us are going upstairs and dealing with this right fucking now. Well, we, like, we had a vote. One of us is a fucking animal. We had a vote. We all said it was Graham. And well, we knew it was Graham because Graham would do that type of malarkey. He would do gross stuff. And we knew it was him. I wasn't home. I had an alibi. They knew I wasn't there. I would have been like, right, all of us together, all nine, I'm going to go up with Graham, who's going to take a shovel, and he's going to take a shit, and we're going to fucking throw it in the bin No, outside. he was like, fuck you, I didn't do this, there's no proof. And so we didn't really have any proof, so just no one cleaned the turd. Ming in. 
And people still continue to shower it next to the turd. No. Well, they must have because it eventually disintegrated and went down the drain. That's making me feel a bit sick. <laughs> we have to, to ask Wackily about this. This story. is a question that I'm going to ask him over Thanksgiving when he's deep frying the turkey. Yeah, ask him while we're eating. I'm going to. And God bless Wackily and his story about the turd. The, the shower turd. The shower turd that he did. And then he mashed down the, the shower with his toes. Like mashed potatoes. Brown and God mashed bless potatoes. D, who had to go to his girlfriend's house to shower because wackily um, shit in the shower. Well, he didn't. I don't think he oh, did. Oh, no, I'm going to say the wackily. I'm going to say I heard wackily. I'm pretty sure it was Graham. It was wackily. Anyway, uh, thank you, Matt the Trucker, for that um, Amazing a, delightful story. Uh, people, you can call the Sicker on Hotline 323-522-4032 or just make a voice recording and send us an MP3 to SickerOnPodcast at gmail.com. Um, big ups to all the listeners who support us on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. You're the ones that keep this show going. Seriously, like, you're the only reason I still do this show. Just like the People's Temple members, you are keeping the shit show going. And I mean, you really do help us out um, and, you, and, and we appreciate it. Patreon.com slash SickerOnRong or just subscribe to the second show on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you want to buy some merch, we do have some, uh, some a Sick and Wrong Tea Public store. Just go to sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop and click on the picture of the Pope. And uh, Sick and Wrong Song of the Week, wanted to pick something topical. So there's a lot of songs actually written about Jim Jones. Yeah. Um, Deicide has a song about Which Jim Jones. Good. Concrete Blonde has a song about Jim Jones. Psychic TV. Uh, Psychic TV has a song about Jim Jones. But this surprised me. The Vapors. Have a song about Jim Jones called Jimmy Jones. I always get when people are like, "Oh, the Vapors, they had a one, they were a one-hit wonder because they did Turning Japanese." He's like, "The Vapors actually have a lot of really good songs, and they're one of the better new wave bands." It's like, just get over Turning Japanese, like get over it. Well, it's kind of like got loads of good songs. Dead or Alive, you know, you spin me you right around. It's like no one knows any of their round. other songs, and That's and true. Turning Japanese was a huge hit for them, uh, but this song is definitely a bit darker. Um, so. The line that, and some of the, like, you can go look at, I, I urge you to look at the lyrics because it's kind of great. But the line, they tell me Jimmy's on sale. He's got a mouth to feed. Suggests that Jim Jones might be a little more concerned with selling his message and supporting himself rather than truly helping others. And I think that's right. the point of the song. Yeah. Is that, um, you know, don't, don't take a quick fix or an easy answer. Seek it out. Seek it out yourself. Um, and then there's there's a great line: Jimmy Jones and his soul clones will get you. Yeah, they will. Uh, it's a great song off their album Magnets, which came out in 1981. So we're gonna end the show here with uh, Jimmy Jones by the Vapors. Uh, people will be back next week with episode 922. Till then, take it sleazy.
You'll have no problem with the thing if you just relax. 